Welcome to the latest edition of Let's Humanize Finance, where we take you inside the minds and lives of daring entrepreneurs who are trying to change how we interact with money. I'm your host, Michael Sigmar, and for today's conversation, we're excited to have Matt Cohen, who's building Invest Forward, an innovative and holistic wealth management solution that helps the everyday American manage their entire financial life in a simple, transparent, and low-cost way. Matt's been very thoughtful about building out the Invest Forward platform, and I've never seen him as excited about his work as he has been with Invest Forward. He's built out a strong set of partnerships and a good set of investors into Invest Forward, including Transamerica Ventures, and he has a great background at the intersection of finance, technology, and making an impact. Matt was previously a partner at City Light Capital, a top impact investment venture capital firm that he helped build from the ground up. He also has a finance and startup experience as a banker at City and Bear Stearns, and was a founding member and VP of Business Development at Netfolio, which was an early 2000s fintech startup. I'm excited to have Matt here on the podcast today. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. How are you doing, Matt? Great. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah. Just great. one quick update there. I'm still a partner, kind of uh, pulling double duty a bit. Uh, and most of my duty is on Invest Forward, but also uh, is still involved with it in uh, City Light Capital as well. So when do you find time to sleep then? Not, not a whole lot, <laughs> that is for sure. Uh, but I would have it no other way. That's great. Well, no, that, that's great to hear, and thanks for the, thanks for the clarification. Um, and I'm sure people want to hear about the founding story of Invest Forward. Yeah. But I also want people to know, you know who you really are before we get into anything about work. So you know, I've heard you're a pretty good hockey player. Do you still, uh, still play? Yeah, I, I, I was a decent player, and I'm less decent now that I'm an old man. But... Uh, <laughs> I still love it. I still play uh, one, one or two times a week, and uh, I try to keep up with the young, the young bucks. Can you keep up? Uh, some nights I'm, I still got it. Other nights, <laughs> you know, I'm just happy to be out there. That's great. And when, and you know, it's interesting. I think sports can have an impact on other parts of life. So, how has hockey impacted, you know, how you've built Invest Forward, how you built the team and the culture around it? Yeah, I think growing up, and it wasn't just hockey, I was kind of active in, in uh, all sports. And I think really early, um, you know, from an early age, I kind of understood the value of teamwork and the under, understood the value of relying on others and the others, you know, and, and how much I enjoy that. Um, I kind of genuinely enjoy uh, winning with a group and um, kind of having other people involved. And I think a lot of that came from being a young, uh, you know, just a young kind of uh, competitive athlete. And as I've gotten older, I've mellowed on those things and realized that those things had their time and place. And I think I carry a lot of that forward today. And, and the kind of competitive fire is around, um, you know, in this case, and we'll get into more of it, but in this case, it's around kind of providing a service to the world that doesn't exist and should exist. And I, and I feel, you know, incredibly passionate and, and uh, committed to doing that the same way I used to be you know, when, when I went to in high school or whatever, you know, uh, just uh, get, got kind of amped up for the big game. And then I think with the team that we have now, um, it's interesting, right? Some folks have uh, some athletic background and a lot of people don't. Um, but like, you know, just bringing it back to kind of your sports uh, um, overarching thought, um, you know, now I play the role oftentimes of, of coach in terms of trying to get the most out of each player on the team. And thinking back to the kind of the sports days, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of what goes into that, right? And figure out what motivates each player and figure out what uh, gets people excited and, um, you know, wanting to kind of tease that out of each of each of the uh, you know, people on our team. Who was your on, on that point? Who was your favorite coach and why, why were they your favorite coach? Um, that is good. I guess I'll keep it easy and stay with my high school hockey coach. I think he was. Um, you know, you see a wide range of leaders and some are kind of hard asses and others are inspirational. And he um, took the approach that, you know, life was about a lot more than uh, what we were doing at the time. Um, but that this was a representation of how, the, how you live, live the rest of your life. So, um, you know, he kind of said things like, if you're not falling down, you're not trying hard enough. And if you extrapolate those things out over... Um, beyond just playing the the game, and it's at the end of the day that's just the game. But you kind of approach your life that way. I I, I used to find his sayings pretty insightful. It's interesting. Um, well, in addition to kind of the sports background, you also have a really interesting background in financial services and business. I mean, 
you were in a fintech startup in the early 2000s before maybe even people called fintech fintech. Um, You've been in asset management, you've been in banking, um, and most recently, and and you still are a partner at CityLight, which is an early stage impact investing uh, venture capital firm. So how have these diverse experiences really shaped the way um, that you've built Invest Forward? Yeah, I think Invest Forward interestingly touches all of them in some interesting way. And I think without the kind of uh, underpinning and understanding of the asset management business and the way that that was delivered historically, I would not have been able to build this with such clear eyes. Um, And then also kind of understand the elements that are important to someone's financial life. Um, I would not have been able to do it. And then the venture background obviously uh, plays a pretty central role to what we're we're doing now. And then Netfolio, um, you know, early days startup, um, to your point, kind of before the turn, I mean, there are certainly fin, fintech elements in what people were doing, but as a kind of investable class didn't really exist. And I think that experience and realizing really early on in my career that you could kind of take on the status quo with something that is um, interesting and that the world could be a better place because of it. I think, um, you know, and I was just a couple of years out of college at the time. I think, you know, all that stuff kind of rolled into one. Um set the stage for uh, Invest Forward to kind of be what it is. And then the other thing I would say is, you know, I made good friends along that journey and those good friends have chipped in in meaningful ways uh, through partnerships and through other elements of what we've built with Invest Forward that frankly, I think would be difficult for other folks um, or just kind of not having uh, the, the, the breadth of experience or the, or the uh, kind of, a range of, of pre-existing relationships to, to get it to where it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's fantastic. And for people who don't know about Invest Forward, what is Invest Forward? And can I explain it in the context, I mean, of the, the gravity of what you're trying to do here? Yeah, I, I think, it. you know, if you look at the current state of affairs, and I'll just give you some kind of staggering statistics. Um, and you've probably seen, you may have seen this in the mainstream press, but north of 60% of Americans today don't have enough savings to cover an emergency that would come up, right? So you're out- Emergency of how much? Of $500. $500? $500. So wow. something comes up, someone needs cash, literally 60% of the country doesn't have enough money to cover that expense. Um, you then kind of, you ask yourself, is that an income problem? Is that a savings or problem? Is it all the above? What are the elements? And the answer is it's really all the above um, because you layer on some other kind of current state of affairs issues in the country. So the average person with credit card debt has $16,000 of credit card debt. The average person with student loan debt has $29,000 of student loan debt and only a third. So um, we'll take, take it from either side, but a third of the country has less, has zero saved for retirement. 33 percent of the country with nothing saved. So you step back and you say, um, wow, right? We're facing a pretty interesting state of affairs in the country. We have an incredibly prosperous country. Everybody's working hard. People are pretty dedicated and, and want the best for themselves and their families. Yet we find people on average in pretty interesting financial circumstances. Um, part of that is fueled by kind of our consumption obsession and kind of our desire for more and keeping up with you fill in the blank, let's say, keeping up with the Kardashians. Um, And so I saw that and I said, you know, it really doesn't have to be that way. Um, Because in order to put yourself in kind of the right place financially, there's a couple things that need to happen. But really, it's the development of decent behavior, decent habits layered on top of each other over a pretty long period of time will get people to a much better place. These aren't monumental shifts in behavior. These are little kind of small um, changes in the way that they go about their day-to-day life and just taking money that they might have spent in a drink at the bar and putting it away and letting them not the, the, the beautiful power of compounding work for them, which is kind of what wealthy people have done uh, for their whole lives and just bringing that to the masses. So that's a long-winded way of saying InvestFor is really about uh, a couple things. One, it's about access to inf- improving access to information yeah. so that when someone has a question about his or her financial life, they can get their question answered for free from a certified uh, investment advisor. 
So we've created a very easy way for them to kind of ask your questions and get them answered. Um, the moat historically was a pretty wide one in terms of getting access to a financial advisor. For the most part, people needed $250,000 or more to show up at a financial advisor. And then all of a sudden, boom, they had kind of a trusted advisor. Well, obviously that only applies to the folks that were disciplined enough and made enough money to kind of get to that point. And even then, um, someone, an investment advisor managing the asset side of your balance sheet wasn't equipped to deal with the liability side of your balance sheet. So as we articulated, if people are crippled with credit card debt and student loan debt, even to get to first base in terms of uh, starting to save on the positive side of the balance sheet, um, a lot of things have to change. So one, improving access to information advice, that's one thing. That's only interesting if it's very easy to then implement that advice. So the second thing we do is make it very, very, very easy for people to take the right steps in their financial life. So that means make it very easy to save, make it very easy to invest, and make it very easy to get access to the ancillary things like they, they should have, like term life insurance, like estate, very simple estate-related documents like will and those kind of things. Um, and then also kind of in real time, make it easy for people to kind of lower their burden to the extent that they can from a budget perspective and a, and a spending perspective. And then... Uh, rationalize their debts. So, you know, if they can benefit from a refinance on their credit cards or they can benefit from a refinance on their student loans, all of that needs to be incredibly, incredibly easy. Because if you take the original set of circumstances that I outlined and then you go to someone and say, hey, that's a lot. There's a lot of elements of your financial life swirling around. How do you make sense out of it? And how do you do it? I think you'll get the deer in the headlights paralyzed look and response from a lot of people. So you have to make that very easy and you have to make it contextual and to the extent that um, you can do it for them as a registered investment advisor in the way that we're going to do it, where they pay a very simple, very low monthly fee and we manage their financial life for them. Um, you know, I think, I think that is really what we're trying, the kind of the innovation in what we're trying to do. We're trying to make uh, advice or deliver advice scalably deliver management and execution scalably and marry the two of those things together. That's fascinating. And I think one of the things that's interesting about what you're saying is, is really one, it's holistic, right? You're talking about a holistic solution and you talk a lot about people's entire financial life. So you see all these FinTech apps, which are really apps, yep. not necessarily business solutions. You know, how would you compare yourself to the different, you know, the different apps that people can choose versus choosing an invest forward and why, you know, why have you chose to go about and build it this way? Yeah. You know, I think those apps are a step in the right direction. Um, and I think that it highlights um, the role that technology can play in a really meaningful way in making and addressing some of the issues and some of the problems. What is interesting about the disparate apps, going back to the level of understanding uh, that the average person has, Unless there's the connective tissue between saving and then investing and understanding, okay, I'm about to invest. Should I first save in, a, in my emergency fund? Then should I invest for retirement? Okay, in my, in my retirement, I've heard about this 401k thing at work. I've heard about an IRA. Which one should come first? My employer matches. Is that a good thing? Is that a, is that a thing I should take advantage of? Um, so, so if each of those things can be addressed individually through an app, I think that's a wonderful start. The burden is still put on the individual to then knit each of those elements together, which I think is where some of the paralysis comes in. And you just think about any other element, think about your health, right? Your body is, a is an organism that functions with dependent functions. And so you see this rise of, um, you know, a rise of looking at the body as a whole and you see functional medicine becoming kind of a real thing where symptom A has a lot to do with cause, you know, uh, there's, there's kind of a causal relationship uh, within your body as a system and your financial life is no different. And if you manage each of those elements independently, you may end up with the right solution in the end. Um, and you're certainly better off than if you did nothing. But because they're all disparate, a lot of people will end up doing nothing because they don't necessarily know how they all interrelate. So if you create a system that's very, very, very easy and you build, lay out the building blocks 
for people and make it very easy for them to follow and say, okay, this is goal number one. We have this percentage left until we achieve goal one. After we achieve goal one, this is what's next. And you take a little bit of the um, kind of the, the, the pain that comes with starting something or the fear that comes with, am I actually doing the right thing? Maybe I should be doing this other thing. If you kind of take away those barriers, some artificial, some real, and make the system function holistically, uh, my belief is people will be in a much better place. I, I think of it oftentimes like bring your car to the mechanic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people don't change their own oil anymore. A lot of people don't work on their own car. Uh, they like to bring it to the mechanic and they like to get it back working. And I think, uh, I think that same level of paralysis, if I said, hey, you have to go uh, you know, uh, rebuild your own clutch, you would look at me probably like I was cross-eyed a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the way people feel about their finances. Well, what's interesting is at the high end, Wall Street or wealth managers are able to serve the, the wealthy customer like the mechanic can serve their cars. Whereas at kind of at the masses level, there's really no way or in the same way to have that holistic service because it's so hard. You have to pay for it. It costs a lot of money to have that high-end service and to have people look after everything. It's a professional job. Finance is complicated. So how are you going to bring this to the masses where there's clearly a massive issue? And if you can scale some of that down, how can you, how can you do that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And if you just step back from this conversation for a minute and think about the way advice was administered, financial advice was administered very recently and still administered. So to your point, the wealthy, really only 15% of the country is chased by every financial firm you've ever heard of. So, and it's not even really 15, it's like the upper 13% of of the country. Uh, You know, there's only 13% of the country that has $300,000 or more saved. So every ad, every billion, multi-billion dollar company you've ever heard of as it relates to managing your money is chasing 13% of the country. How has the rest of the country historically been uh, served? It's actually interesting to think about. Um, through media, right? So, and I, 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 have ad, I admire all these guys for what they've done and I've been fans and I've listened to their radio shows and read their books and so Dave Ramsey, third most popular radio talk show host in the country. He's got seven plus million weekly radio listeners. Susie Orman, you know, these guys who, um, and to your point, the reason they were so, and are so popular is that the only way you could really deliver advice at scale was one to many. And media is one to many. It's a classic, you write a book, a lot of people can buy the book. You have a podcast. A lot of people can listen to the podcast. You're on TV. A lot of people can. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No doubt. Uh, you have to get better guests. But <laughs> um, um, you're on, the, on TV and a lot of people can you know, tune in and, and follow you. Uh, the problem there, of course, is you then, the individual is then left with the same set of circumstances we outlined before. The individual is then left with the prospect of implementing for him or herself. And, you know, you could tell me all day long a great diet plan. You could tell me uh, what I should go do to work out. And, you know, we all know the odds of me achieving, uh, getting to the gym and working out are much higher if a personal trainer is dragging me there or, or a friend or something, right? So um, while, while, what has ha- what, while the, me- the, the means and the mechanism to serve the masses historically has been I think as good as it could have been, I think we're now at a place where um, technology can deliver the one-to-one in a highly configurable, uh, very algorithmic way, um, in a much more effective way than the masses one-to-many had done historically. Interesting. And and, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about is a tech-based solution that's automated, it's gamified potentially. There's so much you can do with it on the tech side. Um, it seems like a millennial's dream. Is this the type of solution that's really oriented for the millennial or is it for people who aren't millennials as well? I think it will appeal to uh, tech fluent folks. And I think, you know, if you just look across, uh, if you look demographically, what that means, it obviously skews millennial. Um, and I think, you know, by virtue of, of the 
of the t- the market we're trying to serve it will skew millennial. I think it will be just as effective and the right solution, frankly, for um, someone much older with a lot more assets. Just to give you an example, our on the investment management side of our you know of of our solution. The portfolios, all the asset allocation work is done by a firm called Elwood in Chicago. Elwood only serves family offices and very large uh, accounts. And then we're implementing uh, most of our portfolios with a firm called Dimensional, and Dimensional manages $400 billion. Um, $400 billion? $400 billion. And they're only available through financial advisors, and the typical financial advisor has a million dollar minimum. And we've basically said that solution should be brought down uh, to, you know, the average investor. And so that's a long-winded way of saying our solution is the right answer for someone who has millions of dollars. It is, an av- is it is now available answer to somebody who's just getting started. Interesting. Um, and then kind of talk about how do you plan to distribute this out to so many different people? How, how do you plan to assuming you have millions of customers at some point with different wealth levels, different levels of sophistication. You mentioned using you know, certified financial advisors and planners as part of this process. What does that look like and how do you get to everybody that you want to get to and serve them properly? Yeah, I think what's interesting and, and you see it happening uh, in a lot of different verticals, um, it turns out the internet is a highly effective tool to reach many, 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 many people. And so a direct-to-consumer approach in finance, um, you know, at scale, and you've seen it with other, uh, you know, relatively nascent financial services companies really reach a broad audience relatively quickly. And some of that, uh, a lot of that has to do with the power of digital marketing. A lot of that has to do with the power of, um, you know, word of mouth suggestion. Uh, And I think, you know, our solution, when it's fully baked and when launched, will not exist in the world today, which is to have your whole financial life managed for a very, very small monthly fee with kind of unlimited ability to call or uh, email or text someone for support with on the front end the ability to link your bank account and save incredibly easily and basically execute your financial plan kind of without thinking about it. So the fact that that doesn't exist and the fact that it is the right solution for, um, you know, and then to round out, you know, all the partners kind of around the horn in terms of execution, when you Google test them, you know, they'll say, you know, dimensional is the real deal. And these guys negotiated access on my behalf. So, you know, our view is that you build the right solution with a, with a good heart, with the right intentions, meaning lowest possible cost, best possible, um, best possible partners with long-term track records. And uh, then you then you go through the traditional marketing channels, but then also allow people and podcasts and other things to kind of be a part of the story. Um, you know, it turns out there's a lot, if, if 50% of the country could benefit from something like this, we'd be very happy with a small percentage of 50% of the country um, as part of our customer base. And you'd be serving a ton of people who it sounds like really need a solution to manage their financial life if, you know, a third of Americans have zero zero dollars saved. Sixty three percent of Americans can't even, you know, figure out how to how to um, solve for a five hundred dollar unexpected emergency hit uh, or, or expense. Um, interesting. So, is it fair to say that you guys are kind of like the Uber, or the Lyft of financial advice in the sense that you're kind of getting to this using this distributed network to get to people and serve them in so many different ways on demand in a way where they can really kind of see everything, understand and kind of get to where they need to go? I think the on-demand, you know, um, I would like anywhere close to either of their uh, range and reach and success. And I think, you know, companies like ours will do it. I think what you'll, you'll fast forward and see the impact and the change. Ironically, financial services has been one of the last pieces to change. Um, Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it's regulatory. I think the technology that was required to do some of the things that we're doing is very, very new and um, now just available for the first time. Um, so I think because uh, some of it was complex, right, to knit together a solution where you could take small bites and invest, you know, $10 at a time in a fully diversified portfolio. Or if you're in the, you know, the case of some of the companies doing roundups to do, you know, a penny, you know, 30 cents into a diversified portfolio, that whole notion couldn't 
have existed really um, without seamless API integration and the ability to trade things, um, you know, fractionally and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then I also think, you know, I think we, it's easy to lose sight of this, but Uber and Lyft haven't been around for so long. So a lot of, a lot of this stuff is new. Four or five years. Yeah, right. And so a lot of this stuff is new. It feels like it's been around forever. It feels ingrained in our everyday lives. And if you fast forward 10 years on financial services, all of the stuff that we kind of are building now is going to feel very normal and very um, in the flow of life. Well, it seems like the key would be building a consumer brand that people trust. I mean, Uber and Lyft, um, it's still somewhat of a commodity, right? I, I need my transportation. I'm still going to order an Uber or Lyft, even if my last experience with them hasn't been as good. How do you think about building a consumer brand in finance and one that people trust? Because yeah. it's something that matters so much to them. It does matter. I, I And there, it's something I'm incredibly passionate about. I mean, I think we started this thing from a, from a place of really wanting to do what's right for people. And really caring that we do what's right for folks. And we want that to shine through in everything that we do. And we also want everybody who works here to feel that way. And, and we want to look back once this thing is built and say, wow, we really, you know, we set out to tackle a big problem. We made a dent in the problem and we delivered excellent customer service along the way, excellent, excellent experience. We gave people access to the best possible products that they could have never gotten access to before. And I think if we approach that in earnest and we do it genuinely, it will show through in our brand. We have, that isn't to say that we you know, have to deliver an amazing user experience. So the user experience has to be really slick and easy to use and um, solve a lot of the questions and take a lot of the, the worry and headache out of, uh, you know, in, investing is kind of a dirty word for most people. It's like, they, you know, if you say financial plan or investing, it's, it's for, for some meaningful percentage of the people, it's the equivalent of going to the dentist. Yep. Um, or worse. Or worse, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever someone's a snake, whatever somebody's worst, worst nightmare is. Um, and so, so I think, you know, we're just in closing on that topic, a couple things. One, come at it from the right place with the right intentions. Deliver a very, very fair price for folks um, because you can do that when you're delivering something at scale. And then um, just really, really not give up on on making sure every day that you're fighting for the experience. Because if you get complacent, and this is more true of tech companies than it probably ever was of the old line uh, banking companies or traditional finance companies, um, you know, someone's gonna be nipping on your heels the next day. And so you gotta make sure that you're very, very uh, focused on the customer. Yep, and you talk a lot about the experience and, and as you build this company, you're passionate about coming at it from a place where you, know, you really wanna do the right thing and and give people a great experience in terms of managing their financial life. Was there anything in your own life that kind of really stood out as motivating you to do this? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny that in a weird way, uh, it was probably watching my dad. Um, who we were, from, you know, we were from an upper middle class family. He's an, he's an eye doctor. You know, we were by no means in it in, um, you know, we lived a great and comfortable, but not by any means, uh, lavish life, but watching him kind of always drive the 10 year old car, watching him very consistently read financial, uh, you know, all the books from the gurus and stay on top of all that stuff, watching him adhere to principles of kind of not taking on debt, watching him say no to me many times for, uh, a lot of the things that I wanted to do and then sitting with him when he just retired and seeing kind of how proud he was and he's not a prideful guy um, that he had just done kind of everything right and he was able to retire comfortably as a result of that and it wasn't because he year over year made um, you know an unbelievable lot of money as an optometrist um, it was that he had the right priorities in going through the system and was very very disciplined um, in doing things. And so I think in a small way, and I'll be it, uh, you know, it's a broader set and a bigger uh, problem that we're going after, but bringing that um, kind of rules-based uh, set of, of um, circumstances that he lived by to making it easy for people to follow those rules is uh, something that I'm pretty excited about. Well, you're hitting on something that, that's so huge, which is, you know, how do you help people save? 
how do you help people invest properly? Because if they can't save because they have too much student debt, yep. then they can't invest. If they can't invest, then it's harder for them to get a house. It's harder for them to think about getting a mortgage. They're going to think about getting married later, uh, doing and think about having kids later. It, it, it has so many knock-on effects. So, you know, let, let's talk a bunch of these things in the context of millennials. So, you know, why do you think savings are so important, particularly for millennials? Yeah, I mean, I think, so thinking about it just purely mathematically and understanding as you know, I'm sure as we both do, how powerful having money socked away that is com- working for you instead of you know interest that is working against you can be. Um, it it's just very clear and mathematically indisputable that getting as much money as you possibly can, as early as you possibly can, kind of working for you over the long haul will make you you dramatically happier or wealthier or more comfortable person later in life. And so if you think about, so everything we just talked about was saving, right? And the elements that go into saving, one, you have to have the intent, two, you have to have the focus, um, and three, it has to be incredibly easy. So our country has spent billions and billions and billions of dollars and thrown some of the best minds at making it very easy to spend so look at Amazon and look at, you know, the, the checkout process and look at Netflix and look at iTunes and look at all the examples of how easy it is to spend. There's no shortage of ways to set really kind of ingenious and uh, well thought through ways of separating people from their money. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been nearly that level of that effort and focus and determination on making it easy for people to save. So I think there are ways, and as I said, the roundups and some of the other guys that are out there doing something interesting have taken a really interesting approach and proven that if you come up with an interesting mechanism to make it easy for people to save, they'll start to do it. And so I think once again, it required technology to be married to the desire to develop something. So I think increasingly you'll see you know folks like us and others come up with you know, we're kind of passionately trying to figure out ways to trick you into, into saving, right? We're trying to trick people into saving like, a lot like billions of dollars have spent people trying to trick people into spending. Yeah. Right? Well, what you're talking about is so important, which is, you know, you're trying to connect people with their money and what they do with their money. And how are you doing that in a different way or in a way that will actually help people really understand what they're trying to do? Yeah, I think it goes back to what we touched on earlier, which was, you know, money is an in- interconnected organism. And if you just save money, it, so if you just take money out of your checking account that you would have otherwise spent at the bar and you sock that in a savings account and it sits in the savings account in today's environment and earns nothing, that's certainly better than spending the money, but it's not nearly as good as what it needs to be, yeah. right? What it needs to be is it needs to go, it needs to be, ushered from your savings account to the right places it should be in your financial plan. But if I'm Joe Sixpack, how do I know where it should go? I mean, who tells me where it should go? And if you're the one telling me, why should I trust Invest Forward to tell me? Right. And so I, th- so I, think, um, I think it has to be a little bit of the invisible hand. Uh, I think we have to make it as easy as possible to kind of recommend where that money goes. And then Part of our job is to then make it as easy as possible. Think of it like Venmo makes it very easy for me to pay you back for dinner last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mechanism to make it very, very easy to quote unquote pay the right element of your financial life. So we recommend this goes into your emergency savings account because you should have at least three months of expenses socked away for an emergency. Right now you have two, two and change months this extra bit of savings should go to your emergency fund. Once we fill that out, that up, our next bucket is your IRA, whatever, wherever you happen to be in your um, financial plan and making it again, two things, very easy to know where it should go and two, very easy to send it without you having to really think about it. And with as little friction as possible. Um, I think that, that those elements are incredibly important, but none of that happens unless, I've kind of tricked you into saving in the first place, kind of separated you from your money. Um, Because unless that happens to your point, nothing else can happen. Right. And if, 
And, and then the subtle route, the, the subtle soft edge on the other side is helping you understand how harmful it can be to spend frivolously on credit or on other things where you're, you know, basically putting yourself on a long-term treadmill by have, by borrowing and overextending yourself and doing two things. One, kind of having water leak out of the bucket that you could have otherwise put into savings mm -hmm. and then making, kind of giving yourself a bogey that you need to get over then before you can get to start to save. Yep. So there's a little bit of education on the other side and the education on the other side is making people very aware of how they're spending. So kind of making it transparent uh, and clear and the types of things that people are spending money on. Speaking of things, by the way, that are the equivalent of going to the dentist, budgeting. <laughs> you know, it's a horribly painful proposition and historically without the use of technology, very tedious and then people had to kind of itemize each element and then kind of compare receipts at the end of the month to see where they fell relative to budgeting. Thankfully, all of that can be automated really easily now and you don't even need to kind of be prospective in your budget. You can just link your bank account and kind of uh, from an itemized perspective, we can very clearly see how the money's being spent. So I think awareness on the spending side can drive and free up some cash and also kind of real-time thinking and uh, with kind of the technology we have, we can analyze your spending and recommend ways for you to save. And if people start to free up 50, 100 bucks a month and they put that from the kind of bad side of the ledger to the good side of the ledger, that small micro habit over the course of 10 years makes a massive difference. Massive, massive, massive difference. So it's the little things on the margin. And again, you know, just like if, you know, I did 50 sit-ups every morning for, or not even 50, I did, you know, seven sit-ups every morning for 10 years, all of a sudden I'd be in a much better place than I am now. <laughs> uh, it's those little things that make a big difference over time. Yeah. You talk a lot about education uh, in the context of financial services and people's financial lives. What advice do you have for millennials trying to manage their money? I think, um, I think the first thing is just to jump in the water. Don't be afraid of it. And when you say start, that, what do you mean by jump in the water? I think you have to uh, not avoid it. I think a lot of people, depends the back, you know, I've talked to now, uh, you know, hundreds of people facing all kinds of different circumstances. And I think it ranges from people paralyzed with student loan debt and feeling kind of helpless that they'll never get out of it to those who feel fortunate that their parents kind of foot the bill for their college experience, but now they have, you know, they're out on their own and they have rent and they have cell phone bill and they have all this stuff for the first time. And they're facing kind of, you know, what it's like to live in the real world um, as, a, as um, someone standing on their own two feet. And I think what, what you just have to be mindful of in those instances is it's just important to aware, make yourself aware of the concepts and start interacting in some tiny little way, right? So start to save a little bit, start to invest a little bit, understand what that is, see if it feels right, see if it feels awkward, see if putting money in the stock market and watching the money bounce around scares you, excites you, helps you understand now that you're actually have, you know, put your first toe in the water, does that open up, uh, kind of a, unpack a thread of interest in the other areas, and some of that stuff you just can't learn by sitting on the sidelines. So um, just jump in or get in the game, jump in the water, whatever the right analogy is, um, and just start to try. And part of our mission is to make that um, hurdle as low as possible for people because all of a sudden, you know, if you've uh, been showing up for, for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden you feel like you know what you're doing, you won't feel kind of as weird yeah. anymore. And so um, that's kind of... You want people to show up for something like finances, but a significant amount of millennials say that they'd rather go to the dentist than talk to their bank. Yeah. So how do you then make yourself different than a traditional financial services firm? Yeah, I, I think thankfully it's not very, um, they've, the, the traditional financial services firms have made it easy for us. Uh, and I, I use the term, I use easy very loosely because I take it very seriously. Um, but there's just so much wrong with the current infrastructure and they have such a track record of kind of ripping people off and charging incredible fees and intentionally not being transparent. And think about how crazy this is, right? Like 
how much could you learn from other at a given bank, how much could you learn from other customers if you could just kind of ask other customers how their experience was? Or there was a, a way to compare notes, so to speak, across across uh, the chasm. A couple things that would do. I think one, people would feel more interested and more engaged in the experience that they were getting. And two, the banks would be getting real-time feedback and not ever be able to kind of rip people off because they know, they know the kind of honesty meter would be right around the corner. And so little things like that that, can, that are possible in an online environment where we just, um, you know, in full transparency, share everything we're doing, give real open uh, exposure to our strategies and our methodologies and, and the products that people are in um, and know and, and, and give people kind of the, back, the background and data to support why we made the choices that we made and, and, um, and why we're doing certain things. And then um, sit back and day after day just deliver what we think is in the best interest of, of our folks. I think that's kind of the best thing we could do. And then hopefully the brand speaks for itself over time. Um, and I think, you know, I think the way that I really genuinely feel about it is, uh, you know, I'm building what I, what I think I would want for, um, you know, my kids someday, right? Like I think it's just the right solution. And so, um, you know, I think, I think, and I also think it's kind of fun to set out to build a brand uh, around something that is historically so painful because it, it makes you a little more intentional about trying to make it not painful yeah. and taking, um, you know, the edge off certain things. And we're toying just to give you an example. And you would probably never see this at, uh, you know, mainstream bank A. Um, you know, one of, we have what we call our money rules. And one of the things that's important, and it's proven out by a lot of interesting statistical data, is that people should spend money on experiences, not things. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole host of enriching elements that come from spending on experiences. And what we are kind of thinking about doing is finding interesting experiences to be able to offer to our community and doing them at a third of the cost that it might, you know, we can subsidize them and we can find partnerships and get things sponsored because we can do it at scale that other people could never do on their own and delivering those experiences to people so that they cannot do two things, get the, get the experience and not spend a fortune on getting the experience. Um, you know, we think that's not only in the best interest of our users, it makes our brand a little more interesting and a little more relevant and in line with how we like to live our own lives. And something that a traditional financial services firm probably wouldn't even ever think to do. Yep. Well, what's interesting about that is some of the things you're talking about that are so different about Invest Forward or some of these digital wealth management or digital fintech firms is that you're using technology. But so many of these things actually seem to be just, you know, somewhat common sense. You know, how do you make people trust you better? Um, how do you kind of understand what they're going through? How do you humanize finance, really? I mean, what you're talking about and helping them understand and have experiences with their money as a result of their money through Invest Forward is all about humanizing finance, right? Um, so, so given that, what does the future of wealth management look like to you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because everything in life, whether it's a first date, whether it's, um, you know, the way you think back about your hometown, is about how you feel. Everything in life, right? Your boss makes you feel great or your boss makes you feel stressed. You're, um, you have a great relationship with your parents that you think back of fondly or you're, you're excited to get out of the house and never look back. Whatever it is, it's about feeling. And if you think about the way we just talked about the traditional financial services firms, or you think about the way we talked about going to the dentist, or you think all those make you feel horrible <laughs> and make yep. you feel not happy. Yeah. Right. And so if we focus our efforts on creating experience that makes you feel good and feel proud for saving and feel and see your balance growing over time and see um, you in a weird way kind of feel great that you were aware that you could have spent that money, but instead you saved it um, towards your goal and you're that much closer to your goal. I think you'll start to see that stuff. Um, shape the way people kind of think about finance. And so all of a sudden it might not feel so bad. It might start to feel actually kind of good. 
mm-hmm. right? If you start to, if you, if you get on a string of working out, um, you say, yeah, and you start to eat a little better. You start to not want to cheat. You start to think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, if I miss this workout, um, you know, I, I just went X number of days in a row and I want, things start to build on themselves in an interesting way. And so I it's kind of circling back to your question, you know, if we do this right and other people undoubtedly will join us in the fray, um, you know, I think you'll start to see instances where people feel a little more pride and a little more ownership over their financial lives than this kind of disenfranchised feeling where they feel like they're fighting the big banks and, and they, you know, the big banks only want them if they're rich and those guys are annoying. They try to rip me off at every turn and they charge me all these ancillary fees. And, uh, you know, so I, that's what I think the future is. I, it's actually really interesting. And, I'll, and this is the last statistic I'll throw out on this topic. Um, 50% of the country feels like they aren't wealthy enough to or deserve attention from a financial services professional. And you say, oh, that's staggering and horrible. And then the statistic goes on to reference, which is hearkening back to our earlier points, that the amount of money that they deem sufficient is $50,000. So even that highlights, so 50% of the country thinks they need $50,000 or more. Even that highlights the massive delta that still exists between reality in the financial services world today and people's perception of how much money they need in that the average advisor wants 250,000 probably or more before they'll talk to you, not 50. Yeah. And it's a little bit like, you know, you're so far from kind of getting into the, from, you know, you're, you're way down on the line at Six Flags and you haven't gotten into the park yet and you have all this anticipation um, and kind of the gates close when you get there. Uh, all that's going to be gone. Yeah. And, any, any individual will be able to kind of have full access to all the tools that literally two years ago you had to have a million bucks or more to have to get access to. One interesting thing about that point and something you said earlier, which was about kind of the, the ability to have technology distribute advice and information and the sharing of information in a different way. And that's through kind of peering or using peers to do this. Um, I've heard that Marshawn Lynch, who's the famous yeah. Seattle Seahawks <laughs> yeah. NFL running back, he, he doesn't just go beast mode on the field. Um, he actually is tremendously astute with his finances, um, which obviously athletes managing their money has been a kind of in the news, yeah. you know, a notable issue. But I've heard that he's actually the chief financial advisors in the Seattle Seahawks locker room, uh-huh. you know, helping other players out with their advice on 401ks. Um, really saving for retirement, things that are really important. So two questions. One is, how important is it to have a peer group uh, that can talk finance with you? Um, Because that seems to be what what Invest Forward could be or can do. Um, And how can you get Marshawn involved in Invest Forward? Uh, Marshawn, if you're you're listening, we would love to, we would, uh, I will try to kind of mine my networks to get him involved. And if he wants to reach out to us, we would love to have him involved. I think he, um, it's fascinating that that story is so unique that it's gotten so much press, right? Because all you ever hear about is the, is the reverse of that. Yeah. The athlete that uh, was incredibly profligate and blew through all the money and all that, you know, because unfortunately that's the norm relative to Marshawn, which is the exception. Yeah. And um, it just goes to show you, it's a lot more fun to spend and be freewheeling and go, you know, do crazy things than it is. But now Marshawn's very much having the last laugh. Um, and to answer your first question, the, it's really an interesting thing, right? Finance and personal finance is almost by the nature of the phrase that has been given, personal finance, is something that people keep pretty close to the vest. And if they're in debt, they may feel ashamed of that, which is nothing to be ashamed of given, uh, you know, that's the average, that's the norm. It's not now today in the country it's it's by no means something uh to be ashamed of but if you're in debt you might be ashamed you might not know who to turn to you you might be hesitant to reach out to your friends or whatever and so and i think that has been propagated by the this kind of exclusionary nature that we talked about in financial services so i think if those barriers can start to come down and you can start to get advice from people in an anonymous way in a not so anonymous way or um, it's almost like a support group has worked in other areas. Um, if you think that they take kind of those properties 
and you apply it to financial services. And um, we're kind of toying around with some very interesting ways to allow community members to ask community or questions of other community members and help them out. And, because, yeah. you know, inevitably, if you had an elder care issue and you're, you know, in Connecticut and um, someone experienced the same thing with their family member in Ohio and you know, otherwise it would be difficult to connect to that person. But, you know, be really great to be able to kind of compare notes. And those types of things are, um, you know, difficult to piece together today and would be very difficult without technology. Um, and so I think you'll see we'll do some of it. Um, and I think you'll see others evolve on it in a really interesting way. Well, what's cool about the way you're thinking about things is that you're also really humanizing finance. You're making it a, a human process and a human experience, uh, whether it's what people do with their money, but also how they think about their money um, with the advisors or, or tech platforms they interact with, but also with their community, which is, is really interesting. Um, so finally, just some, some quick hit questions yeah, to, to close out the interview. Um, who's been your biggest mentor? Uh, I think I probably tipped my hat already to my dad. Uh, so, you know, got up every day, worked for himself, was incredibly self-reliant, never heard him kind of complain about going to the office or getting up and shoveling the driveway to get out there. It was just kind of, um, and so that's probably what underpins entrepreneurial spirit and just this kind of need and desire to, um, kind of you know, go out and do it yourself. Um, and then I always saw you treated kind of everyone around him really well. And was, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, disciplined about how he went through life. So I think in this, certainly in this context, he's been a pretty big mentor. Great. And then what keeps you up at night? Um, I think a lot about how big this opportunity is and uh, how to nail it appropriately. Because at my most genuine core, uh, I want to do something for a lot of people with this. It's not, you know, I'd love to make money doing it. I'd love to do all the things that come with a successful startup and all that kind of stuff. But really that's not what fuels me in this. It's that we've knit together some really amazing technology tools and taken and basically, excuse the use of the word, but democratize access to things that other otherwise were pretty hard to get access to and knit, knit them together in a very scalable technological way. And I just spent a lot of time thinking about the right way to package them and make them easy for people. Sounds like you probably don't sleep a lot then. <laughs> That's the case. Days, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sleeping a whole lot. And then what's a saying that you live by? Um, should I cheat and use one I already did? Which is if you're not, if you're not falling down, you're not trying hard enough. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Matt, thanks so much for having us on here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Matt Cohen with Invest Forward. He just humanized finance. Thanks for having me, buddy.